You're listening to the Refined Hippie Podcast, a podcast all about holistic lifestyle, nutrition, and plant-based veganism for a mind-body-spirit approach to living healthily and happily for ourselves and our planet. Welcome back to another episode, my lovely friends. It is great to have you here. I am your host, Rebecca Hinson. This is the first episode of me recording in my new house. Last episode, I did the intro when I was staying in a VRBO because the house that we bought now in Wilmington, we were waiting to close on it and then we were getting the floors refinished. So it's been a crazy couple of weeks, also a crazy couple of months, but I'm here and I'm doing it. I am sitting on my screened back porch right now because we have some workers painting the trim in our entire house. And I just kind of felt weird. I don't know, just sitting in there talking in a mic and they probably were going to be like, you know, what is that girl doing? (laughs) So I'm sitting out here and this is probably going to be one of my favorite places in the house. I mean, it already is one of my favorite places, but we um, don't have that much furniture. Actually, we have none. We have no outdoor furniture or porch furniture, I'll say. So I am sitting on the floor, uh, on a rug. I put a rug down, but it's quite nice. I am looking at my beautiful magnolia tree right now as it, you know, the leaves and branches flow in the wind. I can hear the birds. I can hear some lawnmowers. So if you hear any of that, um, it's because I'm sitting outside partially outside. And Eva Snow, my white kitty, is sniffing around. The cats love it out here, which I am glad that they don't want to go like outside, outside, because we are hopefully going to get a fence, um, privacy fence put up. Our neighbor has one in the very back, so we just kind of have to do the sides. But anyways, I actually just recorded a few minutes ago for like 10 minutes. And I paused it because I wanted to make sure the sound was good. And I'm glad I did because if I had recorded for a full like 40 minutes and then found out it was echoing, I would have been really upset. It was some weird setting. I have no idea. This is, these are the issues that we, you know, podcasting is, ah, it's an interesting beast, especially when you're one man show, one woman show. I don't have anybody else doing it for me. So, but it's fun. And the whole process is, has been fun. Um, so I suppose we'll just jump right in to today's episode, which of course I'm excited about as I always am. (laughs) Uh, I have wanted to talk about this topic for a couple months now. It was on my radar. I had, I keep a little list of ideas for podcast episodes. Um, and I'll say that there are a lot of key points that I want that I need to address for this, you know, standard American diet um, that I've learned through the years. And, you know, looking into the how and why of something is is deeply rooted in me, not just from a holistic standpoint, standpoint, but I love history and analyzing a culture or society and what they've gone through. Um it's pretty much ingrained in me. My dad loves history. 
both my grandfathers did. Pretty much everybody. And my grandmother. What am I talking about? Everybody in my family loves history. Um, and in college, I minored in art history. Now, generally, when people hear about this, they think of, you know, Van Gogh or learning about contemporary artists, which I did all those. But my main focus was ancient Rome. Obsessed with ancient Rome. I studied abroad in Rome. Um, and when you're studying art, you have to learn about the context of the times, right? So what was going on in that time period, wars, emperors, how the people lived, farming practices, religious, uh, you know, religion at that time um, to really get a sense of why certain art pieces were created, right? Especially, I mean, when you're talking about ancient Rome, it's more about the monuments um, that we studied and, uh, a lot of them were built, you know, around victories of wars and, um, and of course, uh, around religious figures. But so I kind of view the standard American diet, you know, with that type of lens, right? You have to look back to understand how we got to where we are today. And there's, of course, like I said, lots of different factors. There's not just one thing that happened that you're like, oh, yeah, that's why. There's multiple things. You know, there was industrial revolution. That, of course, plays a big part as people's lifestyles were changing, manufacturing processes, um, factory farming or CAFOs. We're going to get into that. When that started, why it started, what, how that changed the, the landscape of our food. Uh, we're going to talk about convenience food, fast food. So all of these things uh, and also politics. Politics always, sadly, play a role in every aspect of our life, and they play a role in our food and why certain foods have been pushed or encouraged uh, through the decades and the last hundred, several hundred years, actually. So before we get into that, let's talk about what exactly the standard American diet is. So standard American diet, a.k.a. the SAD diet, Yes, that is what it's called, <laughs> and it is very sad. Uh, it's also known as the Western diet, and this is a modern dietary pattern that is centered around red meat, processed meat, prepackaged food, butter, cheese, eggs, fried foods, dairy, sugar, refined grains, and this diet, as... You can imagine from hearing all of that <laughs> is void of proper nutrients that humans need for our bodies to function properly. So this is called the standard American diet or the Western diet. And of course, it's not just American Americans that are eating this way. It's any Western country, um, the British, you know, Australia, Canada, all of these places have similar uh, food patterns as us. Um, and when we look at countries that primarily eat this way, we see, of course, the highest rates of disease, particularly lifestyle diseases, meaning they exist because of the way people eat and live. And these diseases are, you know, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, obesity, uh, autoimmune diseases are rampant uh, in Western 
cultures. And all of these diseases are increasing at staggering rates every year. Uh, Just in the United States alone, citizens spent $3.6 trillion dollars or an average of $11,172 per person on health care in 2018. In 1970, that figure was $75 billion and adjusted for inflation, that would be around $498 million today, or around $350 per person at that time. Again, adjusted for inflation, that would be around $2,000 today. So... What gives, obviously? Well, like I said, the food landscape and our lifestyles have changed drastically. And that is with the explosion of fast food, industrial farming of animals, convenience foods. Um, So we're just going to jump right in. The first thing I want to talk about is the meat consumption that has changed so dramatically in the past hundred years. Uh, If we look at the average American and their consumption of meat in 1950, it was around 100 pounds of meat a year. Today, that figure is more around the 200 on average. It is literally doubled. And this is all because meat has become cheaper and cheaper to buy and produce. And that is all thanks to factory farming or industrial farming. Um, And this is probably, you know, one of the main things and first things that I think of uh, when I think of the standard American diet. Like I said, the SAD diet focuses heavily on meat consumption and because of this factory farming this is this is why it is the way it is right so in the industry factory farming is actually called CAFOs so c-a-f-o which stands for concentrated animal feeding operation this is literally the industry's name The USDA categorizes these uh, operations as that, CAFOs. Also, by definition, they have to have animals confined for at least 45 days or more in an area without vegetation. Some of these facilities house anywhere from hundreds to millions of animals confined in a small space. Uh, The most common animals found in these places are dairy cows, hogs, and chickens. And another uh, stipulation, I suppose, for being categorized as a CAFO is they consider how many units you have. And I do that in quotes because I think it's very odd to, you know... um, to talk about these sentient beings as units or products or any of these kind of things. But to them, uh, an animal unit is equal to a thousand pounds of animal weight. So example would be if you have, if they have, you know, 700 cows, dairy cows, that could be possibly you know, a thousand pounds of animal weight, or if you, if they had, you know, 2,500 pigs, 
that weigh around 55 pounds, then that would equal a thousand animal units uh, and so forth and so on. Um, but those are by definition, you know, the things that they look at when they're considering if the farm, if you will, is a concentrated animal feeding operation. So now the creation of these CAFOs obviously helped increase the amount of meat for the world because before that, before the creation of CAFOs, humans were not able to raise and breed this amount of animals in such a small amount of space. And the reason that this changed was because of the discovery of antibiotics and vaccines in the early 20s and 30s. This helped producers, farmers, whoever you want to call them, uh, be able to produce more animals in larger numbers and in tighter quarters with less disease. Also, selective breeding and pharmaceuticals, you know, helped to change chickens in particular. They now grow faster and faster. The chicken of today is completely almost unrecognizable from chickens 70 years ago. They're about twice or three times the size. Often they cannot stand because their little legs can't handle the weight of their body, which have grown too fast um, and too big. So humans have played a role in that from, like I said, selective breeding. Um, But this also has happened with cows and pigs. We have done selective breeding for cows to produce more milk and have bigger udders. So now the cow today has much bigger udders than they used to, um, which also causes a lot of health problems. I mean, just think about if you've ever had a friend who had very large breasts and maybe got a breast reduction because their body couldn't handle it. So this is what's also happening to animals. Now, the creation of these CAFOs would not have been possible without some other agricultural advancements that were happening in the 50s and 60s. So around World War II, synthetic pesticides and chemicals gained popularity and were discovered, which, of course, at the time were revolutionary. They were going to transform farming, and they did. They transformed how much product commodities could be produced and in turn there was more grains to feed this new amount of livestock right I mean if they couldn't have grown all that grain obviously they couldn't have had all that livestock because they would have had nothing to feed it now side note none of what we feed these animals is natural to them they just found that they could feed it to them and they would eat it, and it kind of works. <laughs> um, again, it is not natural feed. It's not natural to any of them. Grains are not natural um, to cows, and especially corn. Corn is heavily subsidized by the government, and it is not a natural food for cows. Um, same with hogs. They are also fed some strange you know, mixture of grains, and chickens to the same. 
Uh, chickens should be eating on bugs and little grubs and things like that. However, they are eating a completely unnatural diet, but that is a side note. So the chemicals and, and pesticides were produced so they could maximize production. And at that time, they were saying, quote, meet the demand of meat. I kind of feel like it was the other way around. Um, I mean, you know, it could, it was like a vicious cycle, I suppose, right? But again, meat has been viewed as something for the wealthy and everybody wants to feel wealthier if you can somehow. Uh, And people have a taste for it. So also what was changing at that time was farming practices uh, technology-wise. So farmers were changing from horses to tractors, which also could help produce more uh, yield. It could yield more food. And hence the 50s and 60s are considered the chemical revolution um, and also the second American agricultural revolution. The first, I would say, being uh, during the plantation times and cotton and whatnot. So that is kind of a little tidbit of the CAFOs and why they were created and how they were able to flourish. So the next thing we're going to chat about is convenience foods and processed foods. Um, These include a large range of products, (laughs) frozen meals, frozen pizzas, chips, canned products, soups, candy, cookies, beverages, soft drinks, processed meats, cheese. All of these would be considered convenience or processed foods. And these also skyrocketed around World War II between 1941 and 45. um, And they were actually created canned products in particular, created for the military in the First World War, which makes sense, of course. You know, if you're out on the field, uh, it would be really nice to have something that is not going to spoil, of course. But convenience foods as we know it today are, you know, more the frozen meals and whatnot. And these gained a lot of popularity after the Second World War. And we have to look at the American lifestyle at that time, which began to change over the decades. Women were starting to get into the workplace. And of course, it was really nice to be able to come home and quickly make something uh, rather than spending, you know, an hour or two hours on a meal. You could pop something in that was frozen or you could use, you know, a prepackaged mix. All of these were extremely exciting to even have. And as I mentioned in my plastic pollution episode, plastic, which gained a lot of popularity also in the 50s and 60s, certainly could play a part in this transform transformation and why all of these processed foods were even possible, you know, um, and to be created at such a large scale because you had a cheap way to package them, right? I mean, soft drinks... And this is just another area that we can look at to consider as a factor. Um, It's kind of like the perfect storm, obviously. There's a lot of different shifts that happened to get us to where we are today with the standard American diet. Another thing that changed was the consumption of oils. Naturally, the consumption of these increased with the packaged foods because A lot of these frozen meals and chips and things and cookies even have a lot of oils. So the next 
area to talk about would be fast food. Obviously, I'm sure you were aware this was coming, right? (laughs) The explosion of fast food is naturally connected also with the factory farming of animals. Uh, You can produce more meat, cheaper, um, and fast food sells mostly meat. So those go along, but the explosion of fast food, once again, is around the, the middle of the century. Um, but the first actual fast food restaurant, fast food burger place, I'll say, was White Castle in 1921 in Kansas. So that was the first one, but it again, it wasn't until the middle of the century that we see an explosion of fast food. McDonald's was in 48, KFC, Burger King, Taco Bell, all in the 50s. Wendy's came in 1969, and their growing popularity didn't really falter until the last few years. There's been a lot of bad press for some of these companies, particularly McDonald's, but fast food in general. Uh, There's been several lawsuits, some documentaries, uh, some exposing of their practices involving the chemicals that they put into their food to get you addicted, as well as their suppliers and where they're getting their meat from. Um, And clearly, they don't really care. (laughs) Oddly enough, though, there are still plenty of people eating at these places. I would barely even call them restaurants, right? Um, However, the numbers are down when it comes to how often people are eating at fast food restaurants. However, the numbers are increasing. There are more people eating at them. They're just eating less often. But McDonald's is still growing. Fast food restaurants are still growing. The crazy thing is that McDonald's, which I, I we would probably consider the, the king of the fast food world, right, uh, opens 2,000 new restaurants worldwide per year. It employs more people, public or private, than any other organization. That's just nuts, right? And the fast food restaurant business... Um, employs more the most amount of low-wage humans in the whole world Uh, and also it employs the most um, vulnerable uh, minorities low on the socioeconomic totem pole so there's a lot of political things probably that we could consider talking about this but again we won't go into those things um sugar Again, this also increased in the 50s and, uh, you know, goes along, of course, with the processed packaged foods, but that's probably no surprise, obviously, right? Um, again, you know, talking about the fast food restaurants and the processed foods, none of these would have been possible had the CAFOs not been created. So had the cheap factory farmed meat not happened, I would guarantee we wouldn't have seen this explosion. It wouldn't have been possible. You couldn't have had all these cheap products um, that are mainly focused around meat. Also, side 
story uh, that I forgot to mention is that McDonald's is the largest purchaser um, of beef, pork, and potatoes uh, in the whole world. But again, none of this would have been possible if we hadn't have been able to figure out how to raise these animals uh, in these confined ways cheaply, right? So the last thing that we're going to talk about that has shaped our current diet is politics, which shouldn't be that much of a surprise, I suppose, because politics do shape every aspect of our lives, whether we realize it or not. And in terms of food, politics have been involved since our founding fathers. Also, racism has shaped our ideals and our ideas of what um, the proper and right, you know, quote unquote, diet is. But getting back to the politics aspect, federal recommendations are overwhelmingly in favor of meat, dairy, eggs, all of these different animal products. And the U.S. government spends $25 billion on subsidies for meat. In comparison, vegetables, fruits, and nuts get about 0.5% of that amount every year. Also, you know, we have to look at the deep pockets that animal agriculture has. They spend millions lobbying every year. And do we think that the broccoli growers of America have a large lobbying budget? <laughs> Very doubtful. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and talking about these big wallets, you know, not only do these companies and these animal ag able to sway the government, but they spend millions and billions on advertising and placing their product on people's TVs, you know, and planting their brands and their foods into our minds. Oftentimes when we watch TV or movies, people who are trying to eat healthy or want to eat a salad or a smoothie or whatever are depicted as these health nuts and kind of weird. You know, when you look at um, pop culture, that's usually what those people are, how those people are shown, right? And the protagonist in the film's are often shown eating burgers or steaks and they're usually, you know, successful. And of course, these beautiful uh, Hollywood actors. So subconsciously, we associate eating a certain way with, you know, looking good and looking healthy. And in reality, these people have, you know, a team of people working on them for their looks, you know, uh, and, and are not eating that type of diet from day to day. Another area that we need to consider and look at is that these large corporations have front groups. So a front group is basically just an entity set up and controlled by another organization. So examples would be 
the soft drink companies have a front group called the American Beverage Association. There is the Egg Council, which of course comes out with studies saying that eggs are healthy for us. Um, and the list could go on and on. Uh, you know, there's there's different groups called International Food Information Council. Oh, it sounds so legitimate and official. Some other ones would be Alliance for Food and Farming, American Council on Science and Health, Animal Agriculture Alliance, Center for Consumer Freedom. The list could go on and on. But when you look at where these groups are getting their funding, it's, of course, from big ag, um, different beverage corporations, like I said, some of these giant, these giant industries that have the funds But to the American people, you know, we don't have time. Most people don't have time to investigate all this or question every single thing they read. But and they're betting on that. Also, a lot of times these companies bet on the fact that they're putting out so much information and there's so much conflicting information that generally people will just throw their hands up and be like, whatever, I'm going to just continue with what I'm eating. Now, another area of where the politics gets really muddy, the waters get muddy, I suppose, is you have all of these companies and corporations and animal agriculture lobbying millions to the government. And then the government is coming out with our daily food requirements. They're also coming out with school program food, like what the kids are eating. And it's really a conflict of interest. So they're trying to come up with what we're supposed to be eating, some guidelines for everyone. But then they're getting all of this money from these companies. And many kids in America get their meals from school, especially when we're looking at the poorer areas. Some of these kids get all their all their meals from school, right? They they have their breakfast there and they have their lunch and sometimes they don't even eat dinner. So the majority of their food is coming from there and especially when we're talking about the poor population, some of those kids don't even maybe they eat dinner, but it's probably something processed. It's a hot dog, it's fast food, It's, you know, something really, really bad for them. We also see in these areas, uh, these are food deserts where these poor people live. Um, These are places that they don't have access to healthy food. And honestly, arguably, I mean, even if they did, would it be comparable in price? Probably not. When we have all of this, this fast food, you know, their meat that they're getting, the food that they're getting is heavily subsidized so they can sell it at such a cheap cost. Uh, and then the fast food restaurant can sell it for a cheap cost. How can how can you beat, you know, a dollar meal for these people, right? When if they went to the grocery store to try to get some fresh vegetables, it would be twice or double that. So we see a, a major issue with what of course, the government is subsidizing and pushing. They're not encouraging foods that are healthy for us because of these conflict of interest. So the other area that is 
was shocking to me, I suppose, to to learn more about is the racist, the racism in our food. And when you learn about it, it, it does make sense, I suppose. But certain cultures which have been deemed as either unpure or lesser, I'll say, their diets were also seen as lesser. So a lot of cultures other than ours, the American or English, I suppose, were traditionally focused a lot on vegetables. Mexican culture actually, historically, has been a lot of beans, a lot of vegetables, and they were considered beaners. So if you ate like a Mexican, you were they were beaners, and you didn't want to be like that. So it was stigmatized that way. And then we have the Chinese, which were called leaf eaters because they ate a lot of vegetables. You didn't want to eat like a leaf eater, you know. And American culture, food culture, really became about eating meat and dairy. Those were the American things to eat. And other cultures that emphasize vegetables were considered weaker. What? Crazy. Also, Africans traditionally ate a lot of vegetables. With the exception of a few tribes, most Africans ate mostly vegetables. It was not until the colonization, uh, till the British came over and colonized and taught them how to f- their farming, encouraged their farming practices of breeding animals. And um, that is when their diets changed. But the slaves that were brought over here against their will, um, they influenced the Southern diet, which was heavy on plants up until recently. Now we associate the Southern diet with being uh, fried food and unhealthy, but several hundred years ago, that was not the case. Um, The slave cuisine obviously played a role in what the white people were eating, but then eventually that also changed because they didn't want to be like them, so they tried to do the opposite. And hence, we have people pushing more and more vegetables and roughage off of their plate because they didn't want to be like these other people that they deemed lesser. And a little bit more fun historic trivia is that the first nutritionist in America came about after the Civil War and the North won. They were seen as chosen by God to win. And the Yankees were the ones to reform reformers that came directly out of the abolition movement. And it was their mission to create the American America that they wanted in their image. And that included their diet. A couple of decades later, they would start pointing to very successful cultures that had conquered the rest of the world and showcasing them, those different cultures, as being superior. And what did they eat? They ate lots of, they drank lots of milk. They had cows. And then therefore, we should be drinking lots of milk because then we'll be stronger and we can conquer other people. <laughs> 
So this is where the idea of milk being this perfect food came from. It was in the 30s and 40s. Um, also, one of the earliest nutritionists, her name was Ellen Swallow Richards. She did not believe that vegetables had any nutritional value whatsoever. This was, of course, before the discovery of vitamins and minerals. But at that time, so that she was encouraging people not to eat them. There's no reason to eat them. Why would you eat vegetables? No reason. Don't, don't worry about that. So we've definitely come a long way in that area. But again, you know, looking at where we are now with the standard American diet and what we believe is healthy or what we're conditioned in eating, I guess, what we're used to eating was all kind of this, you know, perfect storm of all these different situations of these technological advances, of these so-called, you know, uh, changes in science and these different markets changing, you know, and the lifestyles of the American people, um, whether that be from, you know, job changes, uh, you know, moving from a more agrarian lifestyle to a more urban, uh, you know, people don't have gardens like they used to for sure. Um, it's funny. I just, had a good, some people come to my house to help me with some weeds <laughs> because it was really overgrown with weeds. And they were trying to encourage me to spray. Well, not encourage. They asked if I wanted to spray pesticides. And I said, absolutely not. I'm planning on putting a garden here, which I don't want pesticides anywhere on my grass. But, um, and the guy, the young man, he was, you know, I don't know, maybe 20. And he was like, oh, my grandpa used to have a, you know, a garden. And then the other guy chimed in and he's like, my grandpa had a garden too. And it had, th and then they just named off all how big it was and all this. And that is the thing that has changed, of course, is, is just that, you know, we had a bigger connection with nature. I mean, I would bet all of your peers, all of my peers, if you talk about their grandparents, I would say 99% of them had some form of garden. I don't know how big it was, uh, I know my grandparents did. They grew basically everything. It was strawberries, black-eyed peas, blueberries. I mean, whatever, you name it. Um, they had it, and we always had fresh vegetables. I mean, those were my favorite things. Those are my favorite meals. That My favorite things that my grandmother would make were from her garden, you know. And we have lost that. Now, whether or not that is a top-down approach, I don't know. I think it is just a society shift and change we're just indoors more often, you know, attached to our computers and our phones and we're not outside in, in the dirt. Um, but so those are just a few things to consider of how we got to where we are today. I feel like there's a shift happening. There's definitely a lot of talk about the standard American diet, the sad diet as being sad and more awareness than ever before, at least, you know, now this is just obviously in my circle and probably your circle if you're listening. So if we go out of our bubble, <laughs> is that happening? I don't really know. Um, again, mainstream media, of course, is not going to talk about this very much because again, just like the government, they are 
incentivized through their advertisers, right? If you turn on cable television, most of the commercials that you see are pharmaceutical drugs and fast food restaurants and meat food, meat meals. It's a vicious cycle. You eat this disgusting meal, you're going to have to be put on these drugs. <laughs> um, and so they're not, they have a hard time, of course, you know, bashing, you know, the, biting the hand that feeds you kind of thing, right? They're getting all of this money from advertising and then to come on and be like, you shouldn't eat this though. <laughs> uh you know, the companies are would probably either pull their advertising or have a few choice words. I don't know. Um, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I think social media is probably can help in this, in this predicament. Um, and just finding other people who have changed their diets and seen huge benefits, i.e. me, <laughs> um, can help sway more people to change your diet and to look at, and like I said, looking at the history of all these things, like why do we feel this way? Why do we think that meat is so American? How can we slow down and, you know, start creating more meals at home? I mean, hopefully this pandemic has made people more aware of that and, you know, being aware of how fast they were going and how important it is to slow down and be in the moment and maybe not eat as much fast food. Also, it would be great to for people's minds to shift around meat as being this American thing, you know. Uh, and hopefully we're not as racist as we were before and we're not afraid to eat like other cultures, you know. Um, so... Those are just some thoughts. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you possibly learned something new or got a new perspective. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. You can also sign up for my newsletter via my website, therefinedhippie.com. I am working on getting more newsletters sent out uh, that is on my list of things to do as always. But now that I'm getting more settled into my house and my space and my office and my studio, I will be able to set a more, you know, better routine, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And you can follow me on Instagram at the refined hippie. And until next time, my lovely friends, peace and plants. <laughs>